The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. Everyone, if we could find our seats. You know, the sermon this morning is going to be looking at a very large and diverse set of ancient laws. And it's a section, hopefully, maybe some of you were able to preview this week. Um, Well, I I was thinking about what verses we should highlight in our scripture reading, and it just seemed like, man, picking or choosing these or or those. Instead, I'm going to go a different direction and just read for us now a passage that's kind of going to help us to think about how we approach these laws in Exodus. So I'm going to be reading from Psalm 119, verses 97 to... 104, yeah, thanks, John. Yeah, good. Man, I'm, I'm only 42, but my eyes are starting to, wow, I guess that really happens. Um, so please stand with me, and we'll read God's word from Psalm 119, verses 97 to 104. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. You can be seated. And before we get started, let's spend a moment in prayer. Lord, we do, uh, we just want to thank you again for um, the baby girl who is coming um, for Brett and Katie Paddock. And Lord, we ask that this adoption process would go smoothly We ask that you would give them safe travels all the way down and back. We ask that this would just be a sweet time for their family of four to become a family of five. And uh, that the boys would really get excited about this and be uh, really drawn to their baby sister right from the start. So Lord, be at work in uh, all the logistics. Uh, Please protect Brett and Katie from anxiety. Please... Cause them to trust, to entrust you with the things that they can't control, which is an awful lot. Um, we just recognize that. But we do trust you, God, and we ask that you would be working for good in the life of the birth mother, and we ask that this little girl also would be drawn to you from a young age, that she would always know you and walk with you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. And Lord, we also just want to honor you in how we look at these words of your law. And we want to say, work in us now by your spirit to make us people who do justly and who love mercy and who walk humbly with our God. Amen. So have you ever read some of those laws that are um, technically still on the books but you're kind of surprised that they are, and you don't really see the need. For example, in New York, it is illegal to shine shoes on a Sunday after 1 p.m. unless you're employed by management of a bona fide hotel. 
There's also weird laws about food. Like in Georgia, it is illegal to eat fried chicken by any means other than with your hands. Uh, and in New Jersey, it is technically illegal to purchase ice cream after 6 p.m. I don't think they actually enforce that anymore. Um, there's some strange laws concerning animals. In Atlanta, it is illegal to tie a draft to a telephone pole or to a street lamp. And in Michigan, it's illegal to tie a crocodile or an alligator to a fire hydrant. And in Alaska, it's illegal to push a moose out of a moving airplane. There are also laws that are good, you know, laws to protect people. We can see the sense of them, but we're just kind of shocked to think, like, well, you, you actually had to articulate that? Um, in Delaware, it's illegal to, uh, if you're a pawnbroker, you're not allowed to accept an artificial limb or a wheelchair as payment. <laughs> and, and in Alabama, just in case you were curious, it's illegal to drive blindfolded. Um, that one always gets me. Well, sometimes reading the law of Moses can, can feel a bit like that. You know, we read statutes about oxen goring people and bride prices and fires catching in, in haystacks and not taking someone's cloak as a guarantee. And so on the surface, these laws can feel a bit irrelevant, uh, to say the least. They might even it sometimes feel harsh. And so we might be in danger of just skipping over this section, or even worse, of using these laws as some sort of evidence that this whole book is just preposterous. But actually, I think a better comparison is to how um, in Victor Hugo's 1862 novel, Les Miserables, there are multiple long chapters that describe the inner workings of the Paris sewer system. Do I really need to know about those centuries-old passages and the water levels and the rat population and the various entrances and, and outlets? It's grueling material to get through, and at times it seems like these details are just some sort of twisted obsession with, with trivia. But then, as the story continues, we see that the sewers will actually be the setting for the book's climax as the, the hero Jean Valjean carries the wounded and hunted Marius horizontally across his shoulders in the form of a cross, bearing the guilty one to safety. And so, it shouldn't surprise us that this legal code, which can seem so tedious, serves as a key setting to the work of the cross-bearing hero at the climax of the whole Bible as Jesus carried all his guilty ones to safety. But to see it as clearly as we ought to, we're going to have to do the legwork. So we're past the Ten Commandments, but the context is still that Moses is on Mount Sinai and he's receiving further laws. Uh, chapter 21, verse 21 says, Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. So th these are sort of um, rules that fall underneath the various categories set out in the Decalogue. Now, you may have noticed that we skipped over uh, chapter 20, verses 22 to 26. That's not forever. We will get to those. We're going to tag them on to another section in the future. But these laws that we're going to look at today, they, they explain more of uh, God's heart. Some of them look like they, they function like case law. Do you know what case law is? 
it's precedents that are built on top of the statutes, right? So you're looking at how the statutes can be applied in different situations. It's impossible to have case law for every possible situation, but the idea is if you have enough of it built up, then you can usually find some sort of precedent that's somewhat similar to the situation that's facing you, and then you can say, okay, well, we're gonna apply this precedent, and generally it's the same principle to hand down justice here. Now, when we looked at the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments, we saw that, man, th those are timeless, right? They're, they're just so applicable to God's people in every time and culture. Now, the way some of them are lived out changes a bit in Christ, like the Sabbath particularly, but the intent of the law still holds up and is being worked out in the lives of God's people by his Holy Spirit. Well, in these later laws, in this section, which is called the Book of the Covenant, that connection may feel a little bit less intuitive. Uh, this is not a legal code for every time and every context. But neither are these laws irrelevant or somehow wrong. So a key principle when we're interpreting the Bible is to first look at what did it mean to the original audience. You've got to think about what was happening for the original people who received these words. So here we're talking about Israelites in the wilderness about to form their own nation in the land of Canaan around 1400 BC. So you have to understand their situation, and then you can look at how these words are fulfilled in Christ, and only from there can you then bring it forward to us in our context. So I understand that when you read a law about what to do when um, one man's ox butts another and it dies, you're tempted to just close the book and say, well, this is irrelevant to me. Of course it is, because you're not reading it in the context of the whole Bible, right? You're just opening up to a single page, and then you're hoping to have an immediate wow moment. Do you read other books that way? So part of why we are so committed to working our way through whole books of the Bible in our preaching is because each book plays an important role in the overarching story of God's salvation. Hi. Hi. So the context of this legal code is that it was designed to serve a theocracy in the ancient world. And a theocracy means that God himself is king, right? Uh, so that's what ancient Israel was supposed to be. We, on the other hand, do not live in a theocracy, right? We do belong to God's kingdom, but we live in exile. So just like the Israelites would later live in exile in Babylon, similarly Christians in the New Testament are described as living in exile in this world. We do not have a true homeland in any nation. And so we submit to the laws of America, even when they may feel wrong-headed to us at times, as long as they don't specifically conflict with God's moral demands. Uh, but these laws in Exodus, they were given for a specific time and place and for a, a specific nation, a specific moment in redemptive history. So these laws, we have to understand in that context, they, they don't seek to make everything perfect. They were designed to establish order and to point people to the character of their God. So if God was to establish a theocracy today, 
likely the laws would not be drawn straight from here. And it's a, it's a big hypothetical of if that, that wouldn't happen. But, um, you know, our modern lives look different, and we are faced with different pressures from surrounding cultures than the ancient Hebrews were. But what we need to look at is the heart and the character behind these laws, because that would be the same no matter what. And that's what we need to get after today. These laws can feel random, but there is an arrangement to it. Uh, we've got a slide that shows the basic groupings that we're going to see throughout this passage. So you see there's slave law, there's capital offenses, there's laws regulating bodily injuries, damage to property, miscellaneous religious and social procedures, laws regulating court procedures. And those categories were typical for ancient codes of law. It's things that were really uh, relevant to their lives. Well, let's start with that first category, slave law. I mean, last week we were talking about in, in chapter 21, verse 16, it says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So how could there still be slavery? Well, the Hebrew word for slave here, abed, it's similar to the, the Greek word you see in the New Testament, doulos. It can mean slave or bond servant or servant. So there's, there's a range of meaning and so we need to look at the passage to see what kind of slavery is being described here. And what we see here is very, very much similar to indentured servitude, if you're familiar with that concept. <clears throat> indentured servitude is you, you commit to work for someone for a certain number of years as a servant and in return for some sort of payment. Uh, did you know that in the century before the Revolutionary War, somewhere between half and two-thirds of all colonists had gained passage to the new world from Europe through indentured servitude. So a wealthy landowner would pay their boat fare, and then in return, they, when they arrived, they were under contract to work as a servant for four to seven years. And then after that time, they were free to go settle their own land or, or do whatever. Now, just 200 years after that, that kind of seems unthinkable to us, right? But those sorts of arrangements were pretty much everywhere in the ancient world. And in Israel, those slaves would be integrated into the larger household structure. So it's not unlike the experience of servants in those great English houses like 150 years ago, maybe something you'd seen on Downton Abbey or any you know, uh, Jane Austen movies. So I don't want to say that this service was fun or enjoyable. There were often <clears throat> long hours. Maybe you would have a cruel master. But it wasn't systematically brutal. It wasn't, and it wasn't racially motivated. Okay, they were of the same ethnicity. They did have rights. It wasn't totally against their will. It was a means for destitute people to ensure food and shelter for themselves and often to get out of debt. <clears throat> now, God's instructions here uh, regarding this sort of slavery, he's not explicitly promoting it. He's not explicitly forbidding it. But he does regulate and constrain it far more than you would see in any other ancient society. Now, uh, chapter 21, verse 2, <clears throat> it says, so you'll see the unique nature of this slavery. It says, A slave shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go free for nothing. <clears throat> and then if the slave was married when he came into service, his wife would leave with him. If he got married while he was in the master's house, his wife would still have to work her remaining term, but feasibly the, the free man could then work and pay off his wife's servitude and she would get released early. 
<clears throat> and get this, in Deuteronomy 15, we get uh, further details about what happens when a slave is released. And you can see the unique nature. It says, he shall serve you six years, <clears throat> and in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. So no other ancient culture made provision like this for the new start of former slaves and the preservation of their human dignity. Now, even though I've made all these disclaimers about what kind of slavery is spoken of here, even though it's nothing like the, the brutal slavery based on permanent theft of people that we had here in the United States, <clears throat> still, I could imagine that some people might have a hard time reconciling the condoning of such servitude. And to that, I would say, remember where we're at in the story. The purpose of these laws is to set the table for what the people of God should be about and preserving them as a society until the coming of Christ. So where are we at in the story? Look, we're, we're not very far, right? There's all of this, <clears throat> and there's a trajectory that plays out there. So there are a lot of social issues in the Old Testament that we know, even from what God says about humanity, the ideal, the, how we are created to live and to be in the first chapters of Genesis. We see... In the Old Testament, wait, those things aren't playing out as they ought to. So there's this tension because the full restoration of society would wait until the second Adam, Jesus, arrived to start a new humanity. There's other issues beyond slavery. For example, the patriarchs and the Israelite kings had multiple wives. Polygamy. This, this was also the norm in all the surrounding cultures at the time. And the law of Moses doesn't prohibit that even though it's clear from Genesis that marriage is meant to be one man and one woman. And the New Testament goes on to make, make clear that that is what we are called to, to be devoted to one spouse. Another example is divorce. It's allowed for in the law of Moses, but Jesus later said that Moses provided for divorce because of your hardness of heart. But from the beginning, it was not so. Or another example, kingship in Israel with all the abuses that were sure to come with it, God himself originally didn't, he said, I'm your king, you don't need a king. But then with their hardness of heart, they wanted to be like all the nations. And so God gave Samuel permission to concede to their wishes, but it was all part of the trajectory of the story. And then it happened that uh, God used that, that institution of the Davidic kingship, and it's from that lineage that the king of kings would arrive a thousand years later. So keep all this in mind throughout this section. We're not necessarily dealing in the ideal. No, we're, we're laying down provisions for hard hearts such as these that would make servitude more humane for the slaves. It would make it less appealing for the masters. Um, <clears throat> also, I'll say that the, the institution of slavery here, of servitude, it might be preserved in the law of God in part for us to think about our own service to God. You know, in ancient, in ancient uh, Rome, for example, the many slaves had higher status and greater wealth than most free people. It depended whose slave you were. If you were the emperor's slave, man, people would back away and, and bow down and, you know, give you the road. Um, so it depends on the dignity of the person in whose house they were slaves. So Christian, did you know that you are slaves of God. 
The Apostle Paul boasted in this identity constantly. He was so excited. He wanted to make sure everyone knew that he was a bondservant in the household of God. Now, as we saw in the, in the confession, he also speaks of how we're no longer slaves, but we're heirs and sons. That's also true. There's multiple s- strands of metaphor going on here, and we need to appreciate all of them. But he does repeatedly, usually at the beginning of his letters, he calls himself the doulos of God or of Christ. Now, we Americans tend to think, especially uh, of Exodus, as a story that goes from slavery to independence, we love independence here in America, and, and if we were to define it, it's, I get to do whatever I want, right? But actually, that's not the story at all. That's, that's not what Exodus is about. Exodus is a story of redemption and transfer of allegiance. So Moses repeatedly tells Pharaoh that Yahweh says, let my people go that they may serve me. So it's from brutal dehumanizing slavery to Pharaoh to noble, life-giving slavery to Yahweh. And that's our journey also, from a dreadful slavery to sin to a joyful service to God. And check out chapter 21, verse 5. It provides this stipulation where a slave could actually choose to remain in the house forever. And it appears with a little more detail in, in Deuteronomy 15, so I'll read that to you. It says, If your slave says to you, I will not go out from you, because he loves you, and your household, since he is well off with you. Then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door. Basically take a long pointy thing and pierce his ear. And he shall be your slave forever. Now, it's not an exact uh, parallel, but there's a principle here that I want to unpack. If Christians are slaves to God, some of you young people here, you might be here just because you were signed up for it by your parents. And so you're going to do this till you're out of the house, and then you're gone. But I want you to see that service to God is a joyful thing. And God invites you to be intentional about what you really want. Do you love him? Do you love his household? He is a good master. You will have everything you need for true flourishing. But it's up to you whether you'll make it permanent and official. And I hope you will. Well, zooming out now to the passage as a whole, I want to show you four big principles of justice that are reflected in these laws. First is restitution for harm that's been caused. If you, whether on purpose or accidentally, or even if it just happened when you were negligent on your watch, if harm comes to someone or harm comes to someone's property, you have to make good on that. If you leave an open pit and someone's animal falls into it, well, then you have to pay for that. You have to pay the cost of what the animal would have been worth on the open market. But then you get to keep the dead carcass so you can use the meat or the hide. Uh, if your ox attacks another ox and it dies, you know, not something you necessarily could have controlled, well, then you and the dead ox's owner are going to sell the living ox and um, you're going to share the proceeds and um, then you're also going to share the meat or the hide from the dead ox. Um, <clears throat> so there's a, this principle of making good, right? If your animal grazes on someone else's pasture or gets into their grain supply, you have to pay for that. If you're burning stuff on your property and then it spreads and burns your neighbor's field, you have to pay for that. If you borrow your neighbor's animal and it dies, you have to pay for that. I think we get the principle. You break it, you buy it. 
This is why we have car insurance, right? Because if you crash into someone, you need to be able to make restitution. And the same principle is at work in uh, chapter 22, verse 16 and following, about um, the law of if a man seduces a virgin. And this section is um, very much in line with the fine early American tradition of the shotgun wedding. Uh, basically, if you take what's not actually yours for the taking, then you have to be prepared to follow through and pay what that costs, namely a lifetime of sacrifice and devotion. And obviously in the ancient world, the economic well-being of the woman and her whole family were more at stake than is the case now. But there still is a principle here that our sexual expression is a precious commodity that's meant to be shared with one person. And so, as old-fashioned as it may seem, the Bible insists that there is a cost to premarital sex and that a God-fearing person will seek to do right by the person whom they were inappropriately intimate with. You know, in this world full of sorrows, we make all kinds of mistakes. And some of them are clear moral wrongs. Some of them are just foolishness or lack of care that ends up costing others. When that happens, God's people own up to their responsibility to make things right. So are there any people who you, either consciously or maybe unintentionally, over the years you've taken advantage of them or you've incurred a cost from them that just isn't fair? If so, then may God give you the soft heart and the wisdom to circle back and to ask that person, hey, what would it look like for me to make right what I've wronged? Because restitution is a key component of God's justice. But the problem of injustice doesn't happen only because there's carelessness or negligence. It happens mostly because there's intentional ill will exercised. And so for purposeful wrongs, more than restitution is needed. These laws impose a penalty that's meant both to teach a definitive lesson to the wrongdoer, but also to create fear among others in society so that they would never go down that path that's ultimately self-destructive. And so someone who stole a neighbor's goods has to pay back double. If an ox is stolen, an ox was you know, central to their livelihood, it's to be repaid with five. If a sheep is stolen, it's to be paid back with four. And if a thief couldn't pay, then he or she would have to sell themselves into slavery. So <clears throat> this concept of penalty for intentional wrongdoing is also extended to bodily harm. Verse, uh, chapter 23, verse 23 and following, sorry, 21, verse 23, it says, If there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This principle over time became known by the Latin term lex talionis. It's the, the law of payment in kind. And it's kind of gotten a bad rap. You know, everyone thought that Mahatma Gandhi was quite enlightened when he said, an eye for an eye will make the whole world blind. Here's the thing, though. This law isn't talking about personal retribution. The victims weren't allowed to just grab a weapon and go after the person who injured them. No, this was a penalty issued by the court. And the point wasn't simply to make the criminal hurt. You got me, so I get you. No, it was to reform them. Which reforms people better, being locked up or having to experience firsthand the loss that they brought on their victims? 
Okay, but didn't even Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Yes, Jesus said that, but what is he correcting? He's not correcting the court decisions, but a personal appropriation of lex talionis that's it's, it's for our vengeful hearts, right? So if that's what Gandhi was getting after, then great, I guess his quote stands. Uh, Jesus was certainly not saying that Exodus 21 was bogus. He was correcting the hypocrites in his day who were using the law, misusing the law of Moses. They were using it as an excuse to be vindictive. And his point was even stated, Jesus' point was stated in Exodus 23. It says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. So Jesus was building off of that and saying, personally, love your enemies, regardless of what the court does or doesn't do. And there are beautiful stories of Christians going out of their way to forgive and to even do kindness to the criminals who have ravaged their lives. It doesn't mean, however, that the criminal shouldn't still be in jail or on death row, both for the safety of society and for the sobering of the criminal. An eye for an eye exercised by a court of law is not barbaric. This was actually... It's been noted by a lot of scholars. This was actually a significant breakthrough for justice in the ancient world because it argued that the punishment should fit the crime, not more, not less. It meant that not only a peasant could no longer have his hand cut off for stealing, but also that a rich person couldn't get away with murder just by paying a fine. It meant that there was no overreaction based on the popularity or status of the victim, and there was no underreaction based on the popularity or status of the criminal. Do you know that in England, as late as 1823, someone who stole a sheep could be hanged? That wasn't because an eye for an eye was being practiced. It's because it had been forgotten. And an eye for an eye, or the law of equivalences, as we could call it, it ensured that the powerful aren't let off for harming a low-class person or, in that day, a woman. Those things would often be overlooked in other societies, but not here in God's community. So properly understood, this is not a charter for seeking revenge. Rather, it's a safeguard for justice. So we've talked about restitution. We've talked about a penalty appropriate to the crime. And another thing to note is the value that these lives place, that, that these laws place on human life. The value of human life is reinforced over and over again in these laws, like the life of the unborn in chapter 21, verse 20. Or in the case of when an ox gores a person to death, okay, the ox is to be stoned and not eaten. It's just discarded. And and if the owner knew that the ox had a history of goring but didn't keep it contained, then the owner is executed as well. Now, in the surrounding nations, <clears throat> there is parallel for the owner of the ox being killed. But there's no parallel for the ox being killed after it gores someone. It's just a dumb animal. Why would we give up that potential money or food or hide? And we see in the biblical worldview, it's because the murderer is, tre the murderer is treated as defiled. 
the law of Moses is looking back to Genesis chapter 9 when God said to Noah, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it and from man. So the animal is actually held responsible for destroying the life of one who is created in God's image. And we see the incredible value placed on human life in chapter 22, verse 2. It says, If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt. Certainly no other ancient law code was so concerned with the life of the thief. The idea here is that if the sun has risen, well, then you could have called for help. Other people would have been awake. You also could have seen the person clearly. You could see that even if they had come with the intent to steal, they didn't have a weapon in their hand. They weren't approaching you directly to harm you. Um, and this is also protection just so that, you know, someone goes, like, to ask a crazy neighbor for a cup of flour, and then that neighbor just seizes the opportunity to kill them and call it self-defense. Um, you know, even today, we need to remember that the life of a thief has great value. So according to the Bible, no, you don't have the right to shoot first and ask questions later when someone unexpectedly shows up on your property. There has to be a reasonable threat or an inability to, to see the criminal fully in order to merit self-defense. So that's it's a, a beautiful precedent, actually. And the value of human life is emphasized also throughout this section in laws not to wrong an immigrant or to oppress him. Immigrants are vulnerable. They don't have connections here in our society. We're to have compassion on them. We're to have compassion on all, even if our enemies have donkey problems, um, which we could probably translate that to uh, uh, your car breaks down or your computer crashes or something. Act generously, even to those who hate you. Also, we're told not to mistreat any widow or fatherless child and not to take advantage of the poor or to take as a pledge the cloak he needs to sleep on a cold night. Um, you know, this is, um, we talked about this a little bit in the, in the um, sermon about stealing, but predatory uh, loan, um, loaning that where you, uh, you give them a super high interest rate and they need food, so they take it. They'll take anything and then you, you, know, you take their paycheck and that, that stuff is in contradiction to the principles laid down in these laws. And the reasoning for all this is that God is compassionate and he is the defender of the weak and his wrath will burn if we don't live out that same compassion to those who are compromised in various ways. God, now understand God isn't automatically on the side of the poor, right? Chapter 23, verse three, it says, you shouldn't be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit any more than you should be partial to a rich man or to accept a bribe. The law is the law, but the Lord is on the side of the humble poor, the weak and the vulnerable in this world. This is a unique code of law in the ancient world. It focuses on people, not property. It focuses on protecting the disadvantaged, not the advantaged. And those are the unique priorities of Israel's king, the Lord. He cherishes the human life. He gives dignity to the human life. Okay, but for the sake of argument, is human life really valued if you have so many laws that lead to capital punishment? Yes. Uh, first of all, this is far fewer crimes punishable by death than most ancient law systems required. 
That's a product of the law of equivalences. But also, let's examine the crimes that are punishable de by death, and we don't necessarily feel like we see the equivalence. Let's, let's try to understand why. And again, remember, we do not live in a theocracy. No one here is suggesting that this should be the law of our land. Instead, if anything, the, the New Testament draws a connection from execution here to excommunication for the New Testament church. So remember, the law of Moses was for a time of types and shadows. Its value for us is highly instructive, but the way in which we're meant to apply these laws is by cutting the person off from the church because such things have no place among the people of God. It doesn't mean that there can't be repentance and restoration, but we're, we have to understand the heinous nature of these things and not make excuses for them in our midst. Intentional murder was punishable by death. I think we understand that one. Kidnappers were also put to death. Whatever they were up to, whether it's seeking ransom or maybe murder later or selling the person into some sort of forbidden slavery, sex trafficking, you know, this treats the, others, the other person's life as forfeited. And so that person's life was forfeited. Chapter 22, verse 19, whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. This may seem like a disgusting and irrelevant law, but actually bestiality was considered magical in the surrounding Canaanite and Hittite cultures. And we would also be naive to think that this won't soon be an issue here in America. That is exactly where you go next when all of our current experiments with deviant sexuality don't lead to the fulfillment that we crave. Because when there's no pattern from a creator that we need to stick to, then really anything goes. But God wanted his people to know that the way in which such practices compromise the sanctity of human life, that's no light matter. You don't take the image of God that's placed in humanity and then treat it like a mere beast. And then we get into some crimes that maybe we wouldn't expect to be punishable by death. Um, and they are, there's a number of them that are linked with disregarding rightful authority. So here's a fourth principle for us. We're still talking about how the third principle, how the, the law cherishes life. But let's also, within that, look at a fourth priority of the law of Moses. So there's restitution, there's fair penalty, there's cherishing life, there's also honoring authority. And we see this priority stated in chapter 22, verse 28. It's a verse that even the Apostle Paul was insistent on obeying. It says, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Well, that's not a very American priority. In recent decades, I mean, people from all political persuasions, you, you pin them down, they'll say, oh yeah, I, I admit like the office of president is due some respect, but... You know, in this case, that person is so contemptible that I'm, I'm exempt from showing them any respect. Well, that's not what this law says. We Christians need to show a better way. No t-shirts that say, not my president. He is. And you have to come to terms with that before God. And also no, let's go Brandon jokes. If you don't know what I'm talking about, good for you. Speaking slanderously of our leaders displeases God, even if they are bad leaders. So that high priority on respecting authority, because all authority derives from God and is intended to, to give and to protect life, 
that priority helps to explain some capital offenses here that we wouldn't necessarily put in that category. Chapter 21, verse 15. Whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. Verse 17. Whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. These people gave you life and you're working against their life? Chapter 22, verse 18. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Now, the feminine form of the word is used here because it was just more common, just like it is in our day. If you have a medium or a necromancer, you know, someone who, who tries to call up the dead, um, it's usually females. Um, but Leviticus and Deuteronomy also make clear that males are likewise condemned. Sorcery in the ancient world and in parts of the world even today was no fanciful oddity, okay? It's not fun like Harry Potter, which, by the way, if you're wondering, my kids are fine with Harry Potter, okay? It's, that's, it's fantasy, okay? Um, there's a distinction between what the Bible is talking about. Um, but sorcery, it darkened people's souls. It turned them definitively away from the God of life. And so protecting the value of human life necessitated purging this evil from their midst. And then chapter 22, verse 20. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. What this ultimately reflects is that, look, there is no true justice for people when we reject the God of justice. And in the theocracy of ancient Israel, if you are rejecting God, that equates to treason against your covenant king. So what do we do with all this? Though God is our king and we are his people, the Old Testament time of shadows is given way to the universal kingship of the Son of God. And for now, just like Jesus told Pontius Pilate, his kingdom is not of this world. And so these are not our societal laws. And when he returns and consummates his kingdom, we won't need these laws. So they were given for a particular time and place for a specific historical situation, but they do show us God's priorities, which should be our priorities too. We're called to be people of justice. And yet, one function of the law of God is to show that none of us are people of justice. None are righteous. No, not one. What's the cause of injustice in this world? We are. In different ways, at different times, we've been negligent in loving our neighbors. We have failed to protect the weak and the vulnerable. We have compromised the value of human life. We've spat upon the giver of life, the giver of justice and human flourishing. So this code says that if there's accidental damage caused, then there needs to be restitution. Or if the crime is only attempted but not actually committed, then there needs to be penalty. But if your crime is both deliberate and actually committed, then you need both. And our crime is deliberate and actually committed. There must be restitution and there must be punishment. What then is to be done with us? The wages of sin is death. If we look at the law as an end in itself, all we're going to see there is our own execution. But
But if we see the law as the backdrop of our Savior's heroism, well, then we're going to grasp with all the more wonder how Jesus carried us wounded and condemned through to safety. On the cross, he absorbed the cost of our law-breaking. Jesus took our punishment. Remember Lex Talionis, eye for eye, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Well, Isaiah was referencing that when he talked about how he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Okay, but then how could restitution be made for the theft of glory that belongs to God alone? Well, Jesus has glorified the Father by displaying all the wonder of his qualities through his obedience even unto death on the cross. But how could restitution be made for the harm done to all of creation? Jesus is in the process of making all things new, actually better than new. But how could the way we've distorted what it means to be human, how could that ever be remedied? Because the Holy Spirit is changing his people to be a new sort of human in the image of Christ. And so in his likeness, we too live out of that gospel place where mercy meets judgment. And so in the words of Sinclair Ferguson, we appreciate the clarity of the law only when we gaze fully into Christ's face. And when we do gaze there, we see the face of the one who said, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And then we want to be like him. So let's pray to that end. Lord, make us law keepers like that, full of joy, eager to see your character clearly and to replicate it. God, we know that our attempts at obedience could never create some sort of heaven on earth. But we thank you for Jesus because he is the law giver and he is the law keeper. And so, God, if any here today haven't trusted in him to bring them in line with your justice, I pray that you would open their eyes and that you would grant them abundant life even today. And so, God of justice, we say thank you for speaking of these things to us through the millennia and also today. And we pray your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. I'll ask Pastor.